Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, where he is admonishing Christians to live the redeemed, transformed lives that Jesus has called us to. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We are new creations. And uh, Peter said living this way will not only honor God, but will be a good witness to unbelievers that we come in contact with on a daily basis, many of whom will probably never set foot in church. That's why we have to be living epistles and take the church to them because they're watching you and they want to see if what you claim to believe you really do believe by the way you live. So we, uh, we read in 1 Peter 2, let's just look at verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, the Gentiles be just unbelievers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, they're looking, they're watching you, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. We talked about that at length a couple weeks ago. One of my favorite little mottos I learned from my pastor, don't fight the flesh, feed the spirit. You want to have victory, you want to overcome the fleshly desires, just feed the spirit. You know, stay in the word, uh, stay around Christians, let them speak into your life, you know, uh, just draw close to God, as James said, he'll draw close to you, best uh, defense against sin is a good strong offense, just draw close to the Lord, right? So, you know, this, but he says, this is how... We, we want to be a good witness. We want people that will probably never set foot in a church that we come in contact with pretty much every day. We want to be a light to them, that they would come to Christ. Then he adds in verse 13 this command, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, again, we're just reviewing. We've already looked at this, but let me just say that as a way of review. Once we got saved, we went from children of Satan... 1 John 3, right? We went from children of Satan who were rebellious toward the will of God and we became children of God who are now submissive and obedient to the will and word of God. In other words, guys, submission to God's authority is really what separates believers from unbelievers. I mean, unbelievers are called rebels because we followed our father, the devil, before we got saved, who was a rebel from the beginning. But now that we've received Christ, of course, we have the Spirit of God inside of us. And we want to walk with the Lord. We want to obey Him. And uh, this is the big thing that separates us from unbelievers. Maybe you were out today and you saw people with the ashes on their foreheads. Um, that separates Catholics from the rest of us. Uh, I was a Catholic at one time. Had the ashes on my head. But you know what? That's not what makes you a Christian. That's not what testifies that you're different. So we live. So we live. Um, it's interesting that the day before Ash Wednesday is what? Fat Tuesday. Mardi Gras. The idea was get all your sinning done on Tuesday. Uh, you know, because, you know, just get all your sinning out of the way and then get holy on Wednesday with the ashes and all that. Um, I don't want to put anyone down. I, I once was involved in that too. Uh, but it's so meaningless now that you're saved and you look back on those religious empty works. Uh, you know, so much more meaningful, real, 
to have a relationship with the Lord based on the Spirit living inside of you and so on. Now, as we said last time, again, we're talking about what separates believers from unbelievers is that believers, you know, we submit to God's will. We, we bought His authority over our... We're not doing our own thing or trying to do it our way. We, we have now bowed our lives to, to the Lord who is in control. We, we bought His authority. And as we said last time, God is the supreme authority over all of His creation. But He has delegated some of that authority to three main institutions which He has created. And as I said, these are essential for human society. I mean, if, if we're going to have human civilized society, these three institutions which God has made are essential. And they are human government, the church, and then I'll just lump marriage and family together because we're talking about submission to husbands as wives, submission to parents as children. So human government, the church, and any family, including marriage and all, all three of these are vital to the health of any human society, and all three function under the principle of authority and submission. Somebody's got to be in charge, but then you have to have submission if others are going to yield and let those that God has put in charge lead. And as Peter has been admonishing us guys to live godly lives by obeying God's authority over us, he now, starting with chapter 2 basically, or maybe in the middle of chapter 2, he uh, turns his attention to the institutions primarily uh, that God has created, and again, as I said, and delegated his authority to, and he commands us to submit our lives uh, to their God-given authority over us. So these are the institutions God has created for the function of human society, but of course, as godly people, because these are God's institutions, God created and ordained them. He has delegated to them His authority. And so therefore, as we honor God by submitting to the authorities over us, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that's simply Paul's way of saying uh, that at one point in our lives, we have to submit to somebody, whether uh, children to parents uh, we get older to the police, our teachers, our bosses, the government. I mean, in a civilized society, there has to be authority and submission if that's going to be a society that's going to work. And so last time we met, we studied the first institution that Peter kind of zeroes in on, which is government, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we, we looked at that in detail last time. And uh, after that, Peter addresses uh, another idea that, you know, in that culture, uh, you had um, masters and slaves, and it was kind of an extension of the family in a way, if I can put it that way. Uh, you were living under another man's authority, his house, and uh, so it kind of falls under that kind of jurisdiction that God has ordained for the family. But um, he, he now addresses, starting in verse 18, the issue of slaves respecting and submitting to their masters. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, the Greek word translated servants, guys, is oketai, and it's not the normal word for slaves that we see in the New Testament, which is douloi. 
slave, singular, doulos, plural, douloi. And um, this word, okatai, means a domestic servant. And because of it, uh, a lot of commentators believe Peter is not addressing the slave-master relationship here, but rather he is talking to employees, household servants hired by a wealthy family, or at very least a well-to-do family. Uh, so these are hired servants, many believe, uh, employees working for a boss, you might say. Um, I personally don't believe that's what Peter has in mind here. Don't let the word servants in verse 18 throw you. Uh, not all servants were slaves, that's true. Some were hired as employees, but all slaves were servants. All slaves were servants. And I think it becomes clear that Peter is addressing slaves and not employees in this passage because of what he goes on to say to them. Verse 18, uh, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now look, guys, it's possible that back then you had some cruel employers. Uh, they couldn't get away with it today, although some of them would like to beat up on people. Uh, but it's possible that some cruel employers back then did hit their hired servants at times. But if they went as far as to beat them, verse 20, the Greek word is to strike repeatedly with a closed fist. Well, these employees could quit, obviously, find a better boss to work for. Uh, I don't think Peter would be telling them to kind of just tough it out. But a slave couldn't do that. A slave couldn't do that. And that's why I believe Peter is talking to slaves. Yeah, they were household servants, but they were still slaves who were Christians admonishing them to, you know, uh, to be submissive to their masters and to serve them as if they were serving the Lord himself. Classic passage, Ephesians 6, if you would turn there. You all know it, Ephesians 6, starting with verse 5, where Paul says, bond servants, that's the uh, Greek word for slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So not just when your boss is looking, you're working hard, giving him the impression you're a real faithful worker. No, even when he's not around, uh, because you're really serving the Lord. So do it from the heart. Verse 7, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or or free. Now, guys, because Paul is addressing slaves here in Ephesians 6, a lot of Christians, when they come to that section in the Bible, they kind of just skip over it. Why? Well, they feel like, you know, okay, there were slaves back then and masters, but in America, you know, slavery is no more. And so I don't have, you know, there are no slaves and masters anymore. So this doesn't apply to me. But I, I beg to differ, though. Okay, I, I beg to differ. In fact, I think it applies even more so. You say, what do you mean? Well, you see, if the things that Paul, and then, of course, Peter in our chapter tonight, if the things that they were commanding slaves to do, who had no choice who they worked for, 
and who didn't receive any pay for all the hard work that they did. Of course, they received necessities like food, clothing, and shelter, and so on, but that was it. They just survived. If they had to serve their owners faithfully and even joyfully, how much more those who have the freedom to choose where they work and for whom they work and do receive a good amount of pay for doing that work. How much more so do we fall into that category? Uh, How much more so should we obey this injunction and uh, serve our bosses? I'm blessed I get to serve the Lord. He's my boss, so I got it easier than a lot of you guys. Uh, But you, you understand where Paul's coming from, okay? He wants us to, if this applied to slaves back then, how much more so employees is the idea? And uh, again, far from not applying to us today, I think these things apply even more so. One writer put it this way, said, and I quote, being a Christian should always make a person a better, more productive, and more agreeable worker. People will not be inclined to listen to the testimony of a Christian who does shoddy, careless work or who is constantly complaining. If a Christian finds an employment situation to be intolerable, he should quit and look for something else. But as long as he or she is employed, uh, they should do the work to the best of their ability, end quote. And I know some would say, but look, you don't know my boss and how he treats me. He's terrible. Okay, well, again, Peter and uh, Paul were talking to slaves, not paid employees, uh, not those who were working for a boss getting paid for it. He was talking to people who were considered human possessions, the possession of another human being. In the first century Greco-Roman world, guys, uh, slavery was just a part of that life back then. In fact, more than half, listen, more than half the people walking the streets of some of these large uh, Roman cities back then were slaves. It's been estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, uh, including, you know, they, they made up a lot of the workforce, including laborers, domestic servants, clerks, teachers, doctors, and other professional people. But they were people without rights, mere property existing only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. Many of them were actually better educated and more cultured than their owners. Because of it, it was not uncommon for a slave to have the responsibility of educating and really bringing up the master's children. That's why Paul makes that little, uh, I think it's in Galatians, where he talks about, you know, when the master's kids were little, the pedagogos, the, the, the one who trained them, often a slave, and the slave's kids, they mingled together because, you know, there was no difference until, of course, the master's kids grew up and they, of course, inherited all that belonged to their father. And he goes on to make his point. But often these slaves were, well, Luke was a doctor and he was a slave of uh, Theophilus, who uh, we believe let Luke go to accompany Paul on his missionary journey because Paul had some kind of an eye infirmity and so Luke it was handy to have a personal physician on the way, but Luke was a slave. Um, and uh, back then that was not uncommon. But again, for most of these slaves, life was hard. Um, in fact, it was not only hard, it was hopeless. Uh, they had very little to look forward to. It was downright terrible, really. Uh, they were bought and sold like tools or animals and discarded just as easily by their owners when they had out- outlived their usefulness. To give you a flavor of this, let me give you a couple of quotes from back then, okay? 
Uh, one was from a Roman statesman named Cato. He said, and I quote, old slaves should be thrown on the dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take sick slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools, end quote. And then Juvenal wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was, and I'm quoting him, listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged, end quote. Now, guys, this is the cultural context. And you think your boss is bad, right? But this is the cultural context regarding Peter and Paul's comments to slaves who had become Christians. Realize most first century churches back then had a substantial number of slaves in their congregations. You might be thinking, oh, wait a minute. Why would their owners let them attend Christian church? Because these owners knew that a Christian slave was the best slave a man could own. Why? Because they were taught in church to be submissive and hardworking. No lie. That's exactly why the masters let their Christian slaves go to church, because they knew they learned at church to be respectful to their masters, to be hardworking, to be submissive, etc. Turn to Colossians 3. Let me read it to you out of the NLT, verse 17. Paul says, And whatever you do or say... Do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks uh, through him to God the Father. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them at all times, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is actually Jesus Christ. No wonder these owners love to have their Christian slaves go to church. This is what they were taught. Okay. Now listen, let me just shift gears a little bit because it seems shocking to many. I'm talking about non-Christians. It seems shocking to many in their minds, that the apostles and other New Testament writers didn't denounce slavery outright and demand its abolition. Why, why doesn't the New Testament condemn slavery? Why didn't all these apostles, you know, come out against it, lead marches against it? And for many guys, and I just had a conversation with a guy a few weeks ago, this was the sticking point for him and why he rejected the Christian faith. Because the Bible doesn't denounce outright slavery. But listen, if they would have done that, it would have thrown the early church into a bloodbath and destroyed it. Besides, even though Peter, Paul, and the other apostles didn't openly condemn slavery, that didn't mean that they condoned it either. See, they knew they had been called by Jesus not, listen, not to reform society through protests and by leading a civil rights movement, but by transforming people from the inside out through the preaching of the gospel. They knew the real problem was the heart of man. That was the real problem. You can do right, you get rid of slavery, but if the heart is untouched, the wicked fallen heart of man, selfish and uh, willing to do whatever uh, it has to do to, to take advantage of another, you can do away with the institution of slavery, but if you don't deal with the, with the fallen heart of man, uh, man will find some way to uh, enslave or to take advantage of his fellow man. It doesn't really solve the problem. You just remove one evil and others take its place. But once a person received Christ by faith and was born of the Spirit, 
Well, the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, verse 5, would pour the love of God into that person's heart. And when that happened, listen, they would be transformed from the inside out. The result was that as more and more slaves and owners back then became Christians, well, they started treating each other with love, respect, and kindness. And eventually it reached a critical mass, you might say, as so many slaves and owners were converted that, a sla that slavery eventually withered and died due to, uh, to a large degree to the um, influence of Christianity. And yet a lot of people don't understand this, okay? And they want to take the outward approach to change. They, they want to, you know, uh, they're out there fight, marching and fighting for social justice and uh, leading marches for civil rights. Of course, what the world calls a civil right, God calls a moral wrong oftentimes. You can, you can march for the right to kill children in their mother's wombs or for homosexuals in gay marriage. But these are not civil rights. These are moral wrongs, and God will hold them accountable when they stand before him on the day of judgment for participating in these things. But the church has fallen into this trap as well. The church wanting to bring about social change has jumped on the world's bandwagon and has tried to bring it about by going and doing the marches and the social justice and all these other things, not realizing that God, listen, has never transformed a society by outward means, but only through inward change, the change of one heart at a time to the gospel. Otherwise, again, guys, you're just dealing with symptoms and not the underlying disease, which is the fallen heart of man. You see, the New Testament writers knew, again, that man's basic problems and needs were not political, social, or even economic. They were spiritual in nature. Man was separated from God because of sin. That was his problem. That's where all the problems of society come from. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, righteous people don't even need laws. Because once a person gets saved, God writes his laws basically, well, they're already in the heart, but now he gives the grace and strength and desire to keep those laws, his commandments. But Paul says, look, a righteous person, a saved person, doesn't need external laws because we don't want to steal or lie or commit adultery or things like that. Laws are made up for the unbelieving world to keep human society in check. That's where government comes in and so on. The New Testament writers understood this. People get offended because they didn't lead marches and parades to, you know, to overthrow. You, a little band of believers was going to march against the Roman government. Rome didn't handle things the way a lot of towns in America handle things today. They weren't very tolerant of this kind of thing. Slaves made up the backbone of their economy. You think they're going to let you march back then to overthrow the Roman economy? Get rid of slaves? Wasn't going to happen. God knew it. The apostles knew it. Let's take another approach to this. Let's preach the gospel. People receive Christ. The Holy Spirit moves in. He begins to change them from the inside out. He brings love and respect and kindness in the hearts of slave owners towards slaves. And slaves begin to respect and work hard for their masters. Eventually, they just see themselves as equal brothers uh, and sisters in Christ. And slavery just withered and died. That, that's how God did it. But see, the apostles knew this. And they knew it, it didn't really matter back then or even today. If a person was rich or poor, slave or free, listen. It only mattered that that person received Jesus Christ, was saved, and then used their present circumstance 
to reach their friends, their families, and whoever else was in their circle of influence with the gospel. We make everything about this life, not in this room, I'm saying necessarily, I'm just saying though, the church has fallen into this worldly trap. The church of Jesus Christ in America, for the most part, is focusing so much on the externals and on the prosperity and on all our rights. Well, we have lost sight of the fact, even though they would never say this, that we're not concerned with the salvation of the lost. Of course they are. It's just often that takes a backseat to other issues. The only thing that matters in the eyes of God is that a person be saved. God doesn't care if they're a slave, free, rich, poor. All that matters is that person gets saved and then uses their influence, the, the gospel, you know, their, their newfound faith and the power of the Spirit to touch friends, family, whoever else in their sphere of influence. And that's why Paul could say something that is scandalous to many critics today. Paul said something because of this very mindset. This life, well, I'm going to say it doesn't matter at all. But in the light of eternity, it's totally secondary. If we as the church of Jesus Christ really saw ourselves as the army of the living God, not to overthrow people to gain more wealth, but to fight against principalities and powers that have taken these folks captive, and we have the, the, the weapons of our warfare or the word of God in prayer to take these folks who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will, to rescue them, to save them, and we saw that as our primary mission, and we went after it with all our heart, guess what? This world would be radically, our country, we'll say, would be radically transformed. And this is where Paul was coming from. It wasn't about, you know, coming to Christ, you could have a, a, you know, a, a better car, a better chariot, right, uh, back then. Uh, you know, a nicer uh, whatever you had back then. It was all about using your influence in Christ to save people. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 17. Paul said, each, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. Verse 21. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord, you're free in Christ. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. See, that was the real issue. Not that you were the slave of another human being, the real issue was that Paul didn't want you to be enslaved to the devil who was the god of this world. He didn't want you enslaved to the world system, or folks back then, of course. Don't be enslaved by the world. Verse 24, each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. Now, people read that and they just flip out, critics and skeptics of, the, of Christianity, because Paul is not saying slavery is evil. Rise up! Let's lead a revolt or a march against it. Because Paul knew something that a lot of people don't understand. And we've talked about it. Let me say it again. The goal of life is not to find freedom. The goal of life is to find the right master. That is really the goal of life. To find the right master. Before we got saved, we were the slaves of sin and Satan. But now that we are believers in Christ, we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And my Christian life is not about doing what I want. It's about doing what he wants. Now, guys, with all that in mind, let's go back to 1 Peter and look at what he had to say on this subject. 1 Peter 2.18, he said, once again, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Let me stop there. The word submissive means to line up under the authority of. It's a command in the Greek, but it's also in the present tense, which in the Greek means a continuous action. So he says, look, you uh, slaves, line up under the authority of your masters. It's a command and you do it all the time, not just when you feel like it, once in a while. The word masters uh, there in verse um, 18 is a Greek word from which we get our word despot from. Well, that's my boss. No, no, but you have to understand, okay, uh, that word was also used of the Lord Jesus Christ. Despotis. Well, what does that mean? You're calling the Lord a despot? Well, there were benevolent dictators and then evil dictators. You know what? The greatest government in the world is a government by a king who is a benevolent dictator. Now, there, there aren't any really, but the Lord is. That's the strongest form of government because you don't have, you know, the Lord Jesus doesn't have to go through his uh, Congress or his Senate or, you know, to, to get things passed. When he rules on this earth, whatever he decides is going to be. He, he'll be an absolute ruler. But that's okay because he's absolutely loving and kind and good and holy. So that's okay. When you have a despot, an absolute ruler is an evil character, that's frightening. But anyways, here Peter is calling these earthly slave owners, these masters, uh, despotes, which speaks of absolute ownership and complete control over another. Peter further says that this submission is to be rendered with all fear. The word fear there in this context means godly reverence. But why godly reverence? Reverence, okay, but why godly reverence? Because all submission, once again, to human authority is ultimately reverence for God's authority, even when shown to a slave master back then. The idea that Peter is expressing here, guys, is that slaves need to respect their masters and serve them, listen, without bitterness, negativity, but with an attitude of respect and honor. Because at that time in human history, listen, slavery was the law of the land. And this takes us back to what Peter said in verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance, every law of man for the Lord's sake. Even slavery, because at that time, that was the law of the land. Was it ideal? No. There's a lot of things in the history of man that are not ideal. But as society evolves, especially when Christianity is introduced into it, we evolve out of these things, beliefs, uh, you know, that we look back on, like slavery in this country. We look back at that as a terrible time in our nation's history. But back then, slavery was the law of the land. Peter said, obey the ordinance of, of man for the Lord's sake. So if you're a slave and you have a master, uh, respect that with a godly reverence because, you know, um, this is a, this is a um, institution that God has allowed. And, um, this is something that needs to be respected. And the real issue is just being wherever God has planted you and using it to bring others to Christ. Now, 
upon reading these words, uh, many slaves back then, and probably many more Christians today, would have responded by saying, well, sure, if my master <laughs> and my boss today, uh, but back then, if my master treats me right, then I'll be glad to serve him with respect, but not if he's mean and harsh. But Peter said in verse 18, look, be submissive to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now listen, if it's all about seeing people saved, then really it's not about my happiness or what. I know that it's anathema to a lot of people today, especially even in the church. But it really isn't about my happiness. It, it's about how God is going to use me to see other people get saved. And when Peter says, look, be submissive to your masters, you slaves, not just to those who are good guys, but to those who are harsh. Listen, it doesn't take a Christian spirit filled with the Holy Spirit, to treat a kind master or boss with honor and respect, guys. There's no real Christian witness in that. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you only love those who love you, what more do you do than the heathens? They love those that love them, right? It's when a Christian doesn't retaliate when somebody is unkind or even cruel to them but instead returns love for hate and good for evil. That's how we show others that we are really the children of God. Turn to Matthew 5. And again, I know you know this, but let's look at the context and see it in the light of what Peter's trying to express. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, starting with verse 43, he said, you have heard uh, the law that, that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives us sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike. So again, guys, it's no witness if we love those people who love us or if we're kind to people who are kind to us or if slaves back then were submissive to good masters, that's great, wonderful, you got a good master, awesome. What about the folks that didn't have good masters? Peter says, you especially honor them and, and submit to them and work hard for them because that's a real testimony. And the idea is you want to see this guy get saved and his whole family. So be a witness. Verse 19, Peter says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Uh, the word commendable is literally, this is a grace. This is a grace. The ESV translates verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And the NASB translates it, For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, this kind of um, gracious respect is what Peter is looking for. Uh, gracious respect and submission toward a harsh master back then or a boss today finds favor with God. What does that mean? Well, God will reward you someday when you stand before him because you were in a difficult situation and yet you served that person as if you were serving Jesus. You were a great witness. You honored God for the way you respected the authority of your master if you're a slave. And uh, 
I think Peter is alluding to the fact that when you stand before the Lord someday, he will really reward you for that, because that wasn't easy. Of course, by his grace and strength, obviously, but still, it wasn't easy. But, but listen, let's broaden this, okay? Let's broaden this. Peter's admonition in verse 19 really transcends the life of a slave in the way he or she responds to their master's abuse and really, guys, imply, applies to all Christians in how we are to respond to injustice, persecution, or abuse of any kind from others that's directed toward us. Again, we're talking about letting our light shine. We're talking about having a maximum impact on the, those around us for the gospel. Now listen to what Peter says in verse 19 again. He says, but this is commendable. If, listen, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Uh, Peter says that God will reward those Christians who endure grief when they're suffering wrongfully. In other words, they didn't do anything wrong, but their master is treating them as if they had or accusing them of something that they did wrong when they didn't do it. But they're taking it patiently because of good conscience towards God. What does that mean, though? What does it mean if they suffer wrongfully? Um, take it patiently because of conscience toward God. Again, what does that mean? Well, let me just say this. Our conscience, for a lack of a better description, is a God-given alarm system that warns us when we violate something he has commanded. For example, when we break one of God's commandments, our conscience starts to sound the alarm, and the alarm is what? Guilt. Guilt. Now, the Bible says that God has written his laws in every person's heart so that even unbelievers know that it's wrong to lie, steal, murder, etc. You don't have to turn to this one. I'll just read it to you. Romans 2. Paul said, Even Gentiles or unbelievers who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And, and that's the idea. God has written his laws in every person's heart and given us a conscience which sounds the alarm when we violate one of those laws. And again, the alarm is guilt. We feel guilty, especially as Christians, okay? Not just unbelievers feel guilt, but we, especially as Christians, when we violate something God has commanded, we really feel lousy about that. We really feel guilty. But that's God's way of warning us that we have broken uh, one of his commandments and that we need to repent. I mean, get right with him before he imposes on us chastening. He doesn't punish us in a punitive way. Unbelievers, he will, who uh, violate his commandments. And, uh, you know, the guilt comes and he's trying to warn them, you know, you better get right with me. You better repent. And, of course, for unbelievers in view... Come to my son, come to Christ, get saved, and let's deal with this sin. For a Christian, of course, we can still violate what God has said. And when we do, God, you know, the conscience starts to sound the alarm, we feel guilty. And it's God's way of saying, listen, my son, my daughter, I cannot bless you the way I want to if you're going to live contrary to what I've said. Now look, you know it's wrong what you did. You know you're not living right. Come to me. Let's get it right. All right, so we, we can get into fellowship again, and I can begin to bless you the way I want to bless you. But again, guys, just say one more time, guilt is the alarm that begins to sound in the heart of a person 
when they have done something wrong, something God has forbidden. And yet, and I'm speaking primarily of unbelievers now, and yet since most people can't live with guilt, they, they just can't live with it, um, they will inevitably try to alleviate it by justifying their sin, uh, excusing it in some way, even blaming another person for it. That's huge in our society today. Uh, mostly justifying it, though. And, you know, people get good at that. So you know, as soon as they sin, right away they're justifying it. Okay? It becomes almost reflexive whenever they sin. And, of course, when they do that enough and they keep justifying sin, ignoring their conscience and all, um, when they violate God's commandments, eventually they, listen, short-circuit their conscience and render it inoperative. When a person effectively turns off their conscience, well, they are at that point flying blind morally, and they will crash and burn. It's only a matter of time. I know that I've read this to you before. I see some new faces. I think it fits perfectly whenever we talk about this subject. Let me read it to you. Uh, John MacArthur in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, gave this illustration and insight on this topic. He said, and I quote, in 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and turned the system off. A few minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. Everyone on board died. When I saw that tragic story, MacArthur says, on the news shortly after it happened, it struck me as a perfect parable of the way modern people treat the warning messages of their consciences. The wisdom of our age says guilt feelings are nearly always erroneous or hurtful. Therefore, we should switch them off. But is that really good advice, MacArthur asks? No, it's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. But you can do it. Many people have. And the way you switch off your conscience is to ignore it by justifying why what you're doing is not wrong. I mean, everyone's doing it. Besides, it feels good. It feels right. How could it be wrong if it feels so right? This is the mentality we are dealing with today in our society. And eventually, as a person does this more and more and uh, ignores their conscience, it leads to, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 4.2, he talked about our conscience or their conscience being eventually seared as with a hot iron. And we've talked about that. Whenever you burn your skin pretty badly, when it heals, well, you've burned all the nerve endings. You know, it's really rough and insensate. You can touch it, but you don't really feel anything. Paul says that's kind of like what happens with a conscience that keeps being ignored and ignored and ignored and you're justifying sins and all. Eventually, it's like you sear it with a hot iron. In other words, it becomes insensate to the conviction of the Spirit. And uh, when that happens, you're able to do the most heinous things without any conscience, guilt, remorse whatsoever. And there are people that have come to that point. Uh, amazing. But listen to me. The more people in a society that do this, the more people do this, the more that society will become more and more wicked and rebellious toward God. And, as we're talking about tonight, 
all those that God has placed in authority over them, parents, teachers, police, husbands if you're a wife, etc. The result is, of course, unbridled sin, violence, and rebellion at every level of society, and it will escalate, the Bible says, and reach a crescendo in the last days. And we are living in those last days right now. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Well, folks, that's the evening news. That, that is the evening news in a nutshell, right there. You tell me we're not in the days just prior to Christ's return. Now listen, getting back to Peter, and we'll close, but getting back to what Peter said about Christians enduring, you know, being treated wrongfully, and I'm not just talking about slaves now, that's what he zeroed in on, but we've expanded it to include anyone who's a believer in Jesus, who is mistreated, whether at work or somebody is uh, saying things about you that aren't true. and so, This is a part of life. How we handle it will determine whether our light shines or we get right down in the mud with these folks and slug it out. And then, of course, the world just writes us off. There's nothing different from what they would do uh, if we behave that way. But getting back to what Peter said about Christians, though, enduring hurt, persecution, false accusations at the hands of others, and accepting it with love and kindness because of conscience towards God. Again, that phrase there. As I said earlier, our conscience has been given to us by the Lord um, and sounds the alarm when we violate God's will for our lives. When God saved us, guys, he told us in his word that the goal of the Christian life was to make us into the image of Jesus Christ here in the earth. That is absolutely basic. Turn to Romans 8. Let's just look at verse 29. For whom, Paul said, for whom he knew, he foreknew, I should say, Jesus Christ, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he's talking there uh, earlier in Romans 8 about how God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, saved us, etc. And he said the whole idea behind all of that was that he wanted to conform us into the image of his Son. That's why he, you know, saved us. And all the whole purpose was to conform us into the image of Christ, that we could be a, a light, a witness. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I'll just read it to you. Paul said, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So that's what the Lord, the Holy Spirit is up to in our lives. Before we got saved, the Spirit's whole mission was to draw us to Christ. Once we got saved, now the mission changes to making us into the image of Christ. We're like a raw lump of clay, and the Spirit of God is there molding and shaping and so on. But the idea is He wants us more and more to be conformed into the image of Christ. There was a sculptor many years ago, and I think he was hired to sculpt uh, out of stone uh, a statue of President Lincoln. I'm going by memory now. 
So he had this giant block of granite delivered to his shop, and he's, you know, chiseling away for weeks, right? And one young man was kind of watching, it was kind of like his protege, and he was watching, and for many weeks it looked like nothing, just a bunch of chips everywhere and all. But then one day he began to see the face of Lincoln emerge. And he said to the sculptor, the old sculptor, the master, he said, um, how did you know? Abraham Lincoln was inside that block of stone. He says, because I could see it in my mind's eye. And you know what? God took us blockheads to the world we were nothing. Yet in his mind, all along, he saw the image of Jesus. Now we can fight that, or we can submit to it. If we submit to it, it's not going to be easy. You know, when somebody's chiseling on you, what a hammer and chisel it, a little painful. That's what the process is all about. God's chiseling away the rough areas, uh, sin, uh, bad habits, uh, you know, the desire to stand up for our rights and fight with anybody who puts us down. But as God begins to chisel more and more, the, the, the image of Jesus begins to emerge. That's what it's all about, guys. And that's why Peter said again in verse 19, this is commendable. When you are accused wrongfully and you take it patiently because of conscience towards God, that you endure grief, when you have, are suffering for doing something wrong but you haven't done anything wrong, again, by saying this, guys, Peter is appealing to the new heart God gave us when we got saved, a heart that desires to do his will, that we walk in our Savior's footsteps and pattern our lives after his. Now, that's God's desire for our lives. That's our desire because we have a new heart. Of course, in our case, Peter is saying that our conscience isn't condemning us. Of course, you know, a person who is uh, living in sin, the conscience condemns them for what they're doing. Peter is saying, look, the conscience was given to us because it, it stands guard over God's will. And if we don't do his will, we violate that will, the conscience begins to alarm. However, for those of us who are saved and want to walk with the Lord, want to, want to uh, walk in our Savior's footsteps, our conscience isn't, isn't condemning us, it's encouraging us. It's, you know, cheering us on. You, you know, because we, we know this is what God wants. And we want to do it. We want to walk in such a way that we honor and glorify our Savior. We want to be all that God wants us to be. And since God wants us to be <laughs> like Jesus, well, he'll use circumstances to mold and shape us into his image, Jesus' image. This is why God doesn't deliver us, oftentimes, many times, from difficult people in our lives, bosses, co-workers, family members, okay, whatever. This is why he doesn't deliver us from difficult people or from difficult circumstances, including persecution, if the day should ever come. If the whole goal is to make us like Jesus, and Jesus learned obedience to the things he suffered in the flesh, well, then don't expect to have an easy ride. Don't expect everything to always work out where you're, you know, you never are falsely accused or or picked on, or something else. Because Jesus, he received all of that. And yet he remained patient, quiet, committed it to the Father's care. And if we are going to be like him, there's no way we can be conformed to his image 
if God doesn't bring into our lives some of the same things that Jesus had to deal with. I mean, look, difficult people, difficult circumstances is how we learn to be like Jesus because then we have to, we have to handle them like Jesus by God's grace. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Wow. This, this is what it's all about. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return when he suffered wrongfully did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously now i don't know about you but this is for me one of the most difficult things to obey that god has commanded we'll talk about it more next time how for me it's impossible i just need god's grace okay some people you know they're kind of mellow they might be able to handle, you know, uh, being mistreated and all better than some of us. I, I don't handle that very well. But let me just say this to you. And, and come on back next week. We'll pick it up here and then move forward. We need to understand, though, our light will never shine brighter for the people of this world to see that we're different, that we are children of God, than when we act like Jesus in this regard. Read those verses again. Very, very difficult. Here, here, let me just say this, and again, we're done. Can I just share with you my frustration? And I've talked to other pastors, and they share the same frustration. And I'm not talking about you guys in particular. I'm just saying pastors in general and the church in general across our country. When I first got saved and got into ministry almost 40 years ago now, there was a wave of the Spirit that was sweeping across this country. The Jesus movement was in high gear. Uh, the Spirit was moving. And uh, he was just like a wave coming over different parts of the country. And as he did, people were swept up in this Holy Spirit movement. And they ran to church. And when they heard the Word of God, they wanted to do everything God said. And they wanted to tell people about the Lord. And they didn't care if people beat them up, ripped up their Bibles. That was okay because all they wanted to do was be a witness for Jesus. The wave has crashed and we are now in a valley, a desert valley. I don't see, and I talked to a pastor not long ago who said, Phil, one of the frustrations I have when I teach on something like servanthood, he said, I know I'm teaching to a lot of people who have no desire to be a servant. We try to get some of the young moms to take turns in the nursery. Uh, my wife divided it up into four sections. In other words, uh, you, you, you'd only have to work one Sunday a month. And my wife was going to take one of the Sundays. And we approached some of the young moms about you know, getting, getting on board, and, and, and it's their children, and, and let's work together. They said, well, if we have to do that, we're going to leave. We're not here to serve. Now, when our church first started 30-some years ago, my wife can tell you we had all the young moms who were more than willing to serve in the nursery. 
It was a beautiful thing. We had people that were lining up to serve. I thank God for you guys. We have a lot of great servants in our church. I'm just saying it's not like it used to be. And I have to tell you, when you teach on something like this, it's, it's like, who is really taking this to heart? If somebody mistreats you and they lie about you and they slap you around and you just love them in return, right. Sure, I'm going to do that. You know, I hope that's not the case. I, I really hope, I'm exaggerating it, because, guys, this is really what it's all about, being like Jesus. You know, what can I say? There's no Christianity apart from the cross. And the cross is all about doing what Jesus did. So I think we have to come to terms in our own hearts with the Lord where we are. Are, are we at a place where we really want to be like Jesus? We talk about it. We sing about it. But do we really want to do it? Because if so, this is the, this is the blueprint. Now we'll look at it. A little more in detail. I'm going to spend a whole night on it, but a little more in detail next week, and then we'll move on, okay? So may God give us grace to continue these studies for his glory. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, uh, as a country, and as, as, as your church across this country, Lord, we need revival. Let's put it that way. So many are really not wanting to die to self, take up their cross, love their enemies. They don't want to do that. They, they want to be blessed. They want to be honored. Father, give us grace. We, we need revival. Please, Lord, your spirit must be poured out because the selfishness in my heart and so many other hearts is so strong, it's so rooted. Lord, unless you uproot it through a move of your spirit, we are going to continue to be the selfish insensate people that we in many respects have become not loving enemies but seeking to get revenge against enemies not doing all we can to see them brought into the light we don't care we don't care if they walk in darkness and die in darkness we could care less many times give us grace lord to have your heart only when we have your heart will we love others like you loved them and seek to live the life that you lived we just ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.